I hope you'll open a Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. People throughout the ages and all over the world have uh, debated two very important questions. First is, if there is a God who is knowable, how does one get to know that God? And also, if there is a literal heaven, how can one be certain when you die you will go there? The Bible says the answer to both those questions is really one and the same. And it quotes Jesus Christ in John 14 as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That phrase there, to come to the Father, includes both knowing God and it also includes gaining qualification through what Jesus did to enter heaven upon death. We come to John chapter 12 and this includes what's happening here is about a six days before Jesus would be crucified. It begins there, and then it moves to what we call Palm Sunday uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem. But as we read it, I want you to notice uh, the various forms of faith or lack of faith that that people had uh, that are covered here in this. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear God's word. Six days before the Passover, which would be the next Thursday, by the way, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when, John was, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, 
you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in prayer one more time. Uh, Father, with our human ability, we can read these words, uh, but we ask that your spirit would apply them to our hearts. We pray you'd give us faith. For those that have no faith, that you'd give that gift. For those that have some faith, that it would be strengthened during these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always uh, puzzled me and amazed me that two people can hear exactly the same thing about, from the Bible about Jesus, and one will believe and the other will not. A whole group of people can hear and see the same things. One believes and the other does not. So I'm kind of a lifelong student of what's the nature of faith? What causes faith? What makes some people's faith stronger than others? And why do we choose to believe what we believe? We probably all have our own criteria. Maybe we've never written it down. Maybe we've never verbalized it to another person. But I would imagine if we were to do so, some would say that they choose to believe that which makes life easy, that which is convenient, uh, becomes uh, an object of faith, uh, that which is verifiable. I, I had a man tell me once, I'll not believe in Jesus until he comes and stands right in front of me, and he looked me right in the face. I had a friend nearby who said that will happen, but it will be too late. Uh, but you may say, unless I see it with my eyes, unless I can touch it, I will not believe it. Others would say, well, what my family has taught me, that basically is what I believe. There was a study done of graduate students, I believe, at the University of Illinois some years ago, and I read about that. And it said even among these graduate students, they said what had shaped their values and their views more than anything else was, it wasn't elementary education, it wasn't even high school or college education. It was discussions around the meal table at home in the family as they looked back. I began taking a course that I'm going to try and finish this summer on Islam, a basic course on Islam. I'd, I'd read a large bit of the Quran in the past, but had never really studied much beyond a little bit about Muhammad's life. So through Ravi Zacharias Ministries, I was taking an online course. In the very first lesson, is a video lecture by a man who has a Christian apologetics ministry now, but he grew up Muslim and was converted to Christianity in his late 20s. And the reason they wanted this to be the first lesson, the first video we watched in that course, is because the whole purpose of the lecture was to try to communicate to those that are not Muslim how difficult it is for a person who's grown up in an environment much like that man, how difficult it is for them to consider any other worldview, especially Christianity. And he said, you feel that you're denying and betraying not only your family, your whole culture. And by the end of watching it, I had a new empathy I'd never had before of the strength of those values for a person. He said the very notion for him of opening the Bible to read it, to try to learn from it, as he said, was terrifying. You might as well have taken my life away. That's how strong it was. Some will say, I believe, what the majority of the culture communicates. 
Anyways, I am amazed at how some people see and hear the same thing. Some believe, others do not. In the Bible, perhaps the stellar example of this is the raising of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is referred to here in the passage I read. He was raised from the dead by Jesus. That is, the account of that is in the previous chapter, in chapter 11. And if you read that, especially verse 45 of chapter 11... It says in response to seeing this, they saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, many believed. But also, there were those who did not. Now, I tend to think if I was up at Rose Hill Cemetery walking around one day and a grave opened up and somebody came walking out of it, that would make an impression. And you may say, well, at that point, I'd have no doubts of whether there's uh, resurrection from the dead. But... We see the human heart. Uh, some believe, some don't. So faith is not just a matter of feeling. It takes a whole, whole person, the intellect, the understanding, the will. It's a response to truth. But you must choose whether to exercise faith or not. We find that continually in the New Testament where Christ rebuked those. Why do you not believe? It does not happen automatically. Yes, it's a gift from God, as salvation is a gift from God, and the gift of faith, but you must decide, I believe this. I am depending on this. I am resting on this. I am counting on this. I am certain of this. I am holding on to it, uh, or not. Well, here in this passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, we see a variety of people at various levels of faith, some with no faith, some with real faith. And the first person we meet is Mary, and she has one of the purest examples of faith in the entire Bible. But just to remind you, as I said, in chapter 11, Jesus has healed Lazarus. He's raised him from the dead. And Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary, and time has passed since that happened. When we come to chapter 12, Jesus has left there, obviously, gone away, and now he's come back to this little village of Bethany that's not far from the city of Jerusalem, and he's at a meal, John tells us, there in their house. And those reclining at the table include Lazarus. And during the meal, something very, very unusual happens. Verse 3 tells us that, that Mary brings this, this container, this of a perfume of ointment, now, roughly 12 ounces of a perfume made from nard or spikenard. Now, let me tell you, remind you, Mary is Lazarus's sister, but it's important to know, I want you to put yourself in her shoes. She had cared for her brother while he was sick. She and her sister Martha had watched him die over a period of days, long enough to where they knew it was coming. He was digressing more and more and more to such the point they knew he's going to die. They sent word to Jesus, and they were disappointed that Jesus did not come when they had hoped that he would come. They had they'd watched their brother die. They had most likely, as family members at that time, prepared his body for burial. They had gone with the funeral procession to the tomb. They had put him there. At that tomb, and as a custom, they would roll stone in front of it to keep animals and others away, thieves away from the, the grave. And then she had been there when Jesus raised him from the dead. 
And she saw with her eyes this, this miracle, this unprecedented miracle of, of Jesus calling him forth uh, from the tomb. Now, how would you feel toward the person that did that for your family, for your brother? You would probably say, no price would be too high I'd give for this person. We had a surgeon out of Atlanta that, at Scottish Rite Hospital that, that did some wonderful work on our youngest son. And then he moved from there to somewhere in California. Best I know, he, wasn't a, he was not a Christian, but we got to know him fairly well on numerous visits. And he was an artist. He was a true artist. He had paintings and so forth like that, and then plastic surgery. And So I wrote a very lengthy letter on behalf of our family, a letter of appreciation, and also a letter telling about how we were Christians and viewed his work um, as being honoring to God by the sheer fact of its excellence. Never heard back from him. Um, but I know the gratitude that you have, that I've had, when someone has helped you uh, almost above and beyond what was required. Imagine what she felt toward Jesus. I want you to see what could motivate her to do what she did. So with, with that in mind, she, she comes here and brings this very expensive perfume. Do you know what the world's most expensive perfume is? You can't buy it at Walmart, if you're wondering. But uh, I, Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty. A small bottle, $215,000. Now, they only, they only made 20 of those bottles. 10 for men, 10 for women. I kidded. I thought Paul Cable probably had one at the first service. It might show up. The perfume itself cost... $2,150 an ounce just for the perfume. The container is di made out of diamonds, so it's about 200 grand just for the container. So really, the most expensive is 2150 an ounce. Now, this ointment, this perfume that Mary brings out, we are told was worth about a year's salary for people at that time. We can only guess, maybe she inherited it, Maybe it had been passed down for generations for an incredibly special occasion that had yet to come. But now she seizes the opportunity. She determines this is that special occasion. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark also tell us that when she came out, she poured it not just on his feet but on his head. It obviously ran down. She also put it on his feet. She wipes it off of his feet with her hair We've already learned also that that is the lowliest of roles. The, the servant was to care for the feet of the travelers and so forth. But Mary has real faith. This is an expression of gratitude. She had understood that Jesus was about to die. She had understood what he had said. And when he had said, I'm going away. And so she saw this as an opportunity to anoint him for burial. Now, I have to leap ahead because in response to that we have this backdrop against it and that's Judas the other gospels also tell us Matthew notes that, that really all the disciples were critical of what Mary had done but John zooms in on the words of Judas he voices his objections he says what are you doing don't you realize how much this ointment is worth we should have sold it given the money to the poor so he accuses her he accuses her, but with a motive which sounds humanitarian and compassionate. 
and spiritual. He portrays himself as caring for the downtrodden and for the poor. I can tell you as a pastor, I have heard these very same things. I cannot read hearts, but I've heard the complaints, and they come up in two areas. They come up in the church and out of the church. If you build a building, a church building, and if you give money to foreign missions, and I've been on the receiving end of both of them. When we built the fellowship hall back over 20 years ago, it's hard to believe, and which has a nursery underneath it, uh, we... There, right, right before it was in the final stages, it was going to be opened in a few weeks. It was being painted and final finishing touches were being put on. The, a newspaper said we'd like to send a reporter out to interview. This, this woman wrote the religion column, which was very hostile to Christianity. She was at that time. And so I kind of braced myself, and she and I walked around. I showed her, you know, this nice, this nice. And she was getting the facts, the facts. But then it moved more to the commentary. And we got down to the nursery area. She said, wow, look at all this space. It could have been a homeless shelter. Look at all Thankfully, the Lord gave me grace to bite my tongue. But I was thinking, yeah, you're really packing them out down there at the Telegraph, aren't you? <laughs> I mean... Well, I'm sorry, I didn't say that in the first service. I think I, but I don't care now. <laughs> but that's typical. If, you, if any church spends money on a building, and as though we have not given prayerful consideration, pros and cons, and do we build this and do we not, do we, you know, can we make, I mean, from looking at it a thousand ways, but it will always be seen that way. But the other is foreign missions. Can churches do dumb things with buildings and debt? Of course we can. Of course we can. Um, but why not just say, y'all really wasted this money? Why cloak it with, oh, it could have been a homeless shelter? Secondly, giving to foreign missions. And I've heard this one mainly from church members, church people, I should say. What do you think that is? What's the main complaint? To speak to me. You know it. You need, we've got needs here. We've got needs here. Now, only God knows hearts. Only God knows hearts. So I'm not trying to impute motives. But we also have missions here at home. And the very people that I've heard say, oh, we've got needs here at home, they never care about the needs at home that I'm aware of. I've never had one come up and say, I want to make this donation to help with, you know, this or that or uh, that, or we'd really like to help that. It can be, and once again, only God knows hearts, it can be, and nothing more than a, than a spiritual sound and an excuse not to give. And so that's what Judas was doing. This has not been created new. This goes way back. And she says, look what, look at this waste. It could have been given to the poor, but John keys in on it, and tells later they find out all he was really concerned about was his own profit. He was thinking it could have been sold, put in the treasury where I could have, you know, taken a little bit for myself. And yet he does it under this spiritually sounding motive. Well, Jesus responds and he unmasks his motive. And he says something that also can be used and has been used to be callous and insensitive when he says, the poor you always have with you. Now, I've heard that said, quoted before, like, well, the poor you always have with you, as though they're always going to be here, you can't do anything about it, so why try? That is not what Jesus meant. He is talking about the issue of timing. 
Jesus is saying there will always be opportunities to help the poor, the poor you always have with you, next week, next year, ten years from now. It's just a fact of life. It's not sounding callous, but the opportunity to do what she did for him was a door that opened up, and if she didn't step right through it, it would be lost. So he's not being callous to the poor. He's saying Mary sees what others don't see. She knows this is an opportunity not to be missed. If I don't do this now, I may never have the opportunity to do it. So Mary, in a sense, was expressing, I saved this for Jesus' burial. I'm going to give this gift now. I can minister to the poor tomorrow, but I will not have this opportunity again. So Mary has real and extravagant faith. Now we next see, we saw Judas's false faith is just basically hypocritical faith. And then we see the chief priest. We move on, I believe it's verse 10. I left my contact at home, so I'm guessing it's verse 10 because I can't, I can't decipher what's right over there on the, the left page. But the chief priests were members of the court called the Sanhedrin. That was the supreme court, the supreme tribunal for the Jewish world based in Jerusalem. They had extensive authority, and they had extensive power. So these are, these are very respected, very articulate. You could compare them to our Supreme Court justices, in a sense. And their faith is misplaced. Did they believe in God? Without a doubt. Did they believe what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets and the writings? Yes. Did they take them seriously? Without question, did they think God was capable of doing miracles. Of course. They didn't doubt any of that. But their faith was limited and misplaced. You might be here with lots of what I'll call garden variety generic faith. Yeah, I believe, I believe there's a higher power, there's a, there's a God or gods or something, you know, somebody up there that's looking over me, but that's not a proper understanding and belief in the Messiah. That's what they had, and it comes out in verse 53 of chapter 11 when it says they plan to kill Jesus. But now, who also do they want to kill? Speak to me. Lazarus. What's his crime? <laughs> What's your crime? Was it murder? No, not murder. Uh, was it stealing? No, not stealing. What was your crime? Well, I came out of a tomb. I was dead. That was his crime. Nothing, but because of his testimony, because of him being a walking example of what Christ could do, they want him dead too. Let's, let's kill the messenger, so to speak. So it's my assumption, and y'all know me, I'm no prophet or the son of a prophet. I work for a nonprofit organization. But I think, I think we probably are going to... Uh, experience more and more and more in our country exactly what Christ has said that we've been able to watch from a distance in the past. But when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus in John 15 says, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For most of my life, I've read that and thought, well, you know, hey, let me tell you what's happening over in other countries, how this is coming about. Uh, I think it's, it's coming, folks. It's coming like a, like a bullet train. And so my lesson, when I think about this with Lazarus, 
you can try, as you should, to be as diplomatic and amiable and gentle and humble as possible with people, but sooner or later you will be attacked for no other reason than you've identified with Christ and his words. That's what was happening with Lazarus. If they wanted to kill him who hadn't done anything wrong, what does that say about others? So don't be surprised if that opposition or attack also comes from the religious leaders. It's kind of scary, isn't it, for those of us in ministry, because the main hostility toward Jesus came from the religious folks. Now, as they saw it, that would be to their advantage not only to get rid of Jesus, but to get rid of Lazarus. Now, let's look at the crowds, what I call fickle faith. They have faith, but it's very fickle. Verse 12, Jesus comes into town. All his ministry, he put popularity down. Don't tell others what I said to you. He'd go off. He'd remove himself from the crowd. But now all that's changing. He's intentionally going to go public. Huge crowds. Estimated by Jewish historians, perhaps as large as 2 million people visiting Jerusalem at that time. You can imagine. So John twice here says large crowd and later large crowd. Other translations say great multitude. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was not- noticeable. They hear he's coming. They knew Bethany was not far away, and so they understand that he's going to be coming in town. So this large crowd comes, and they, they do something that meant a lot to them. They wave these palm branches, and they put them in the street. That was representative of a military victory. They had, the Jews had had in Jerusalem almost 200 years before with a man named Simon Maccabeus, a military leader who had delivered them, and they celebrated that victory with palm branches and music and parades. And so now they are, they are doing the same thing, showing they expected victory. They shout, Hosanna, the term that went, save, save us now. They were looking to Jesus and expecting there would be some sort of salvation, though most of us pretty much understand they thought it was going to be a military or political salvation from the Roman oppression. And then it mentions he's on a donkey. Uh, wait, what happened? Something just stopped. All this majestic picture and now a donkey of all things. What did... You ever wonder why he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? It doesn't exactly sound too majestic, too royal, too presidential. Years ago, our family was at Hilton Head between Christmas and New Year's. No one used to be there at that time. And we would go over when the kids were little, and then they started having a conference there, the uh, Renaissance Conference. I don't know if it still goes on, but when Bill Clinton was president, they put it there, and thousands of pseudo-intellectuals from all around. Real intellectual firepower showed up at Hilton Head. and I was not there as a guest speaker, trust me, but we were over there, and, and we are in a Fuddruckers right there by the main highway on Hilton Head Island. And one of our daughters remembered, oh, the president's coming. Well, all the traffic stopped. I mean, it just quit moving out on the main highway. So they jumped up and said, it must mean the, the president's going to come through. So all the t- traffic has stopped. First come the motorcycles. <laughs> then the suburbans all blacked out, you know, and everything. And then finally these limos <laughs> all going. I mean, that thing moves fast. And <laughs> what if it had been, here comes the president. Motorcycle, Harley Davidson, Suburbans, smart car. <laughs> smart car? Y'all know what a smart car is. It's got wheels. 
It makes a Mini Cooper look like a stretch limo. I mean, what would you think if the president rode in a smart car? You know, say, that doesn't fit. Jesus on a donkey, well, it did fit for two reasons. One, it was prophesied 500 years before by Zechariah. And John quotes from some of that prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, that's an easy one to remember. About your king is coming to you, Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a colt, even on the donkey, the foal. And so he comes, and also it was a... That's what David, King David, rode a donkey. It was a kingly animal, but it was a humble, showed that he was humble. So he comes, he comes on the donkey. And what we see, though, that the crowd was cheering and shouting, Hosanna, save us, God, save us. But it was really faith on their own terms. They wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted a Jesus, in their case, who would conform to their plans to release them from political bondage. They did not have plans to conform to his agenda. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but don't touch their cherished sins. They did not want Jesus to mess with their superficial religion of outward appearance. And we can be just like that today. Perhaps we are. Perhaps you are. There are people today that want Jesus, but on their own terms. They want Jesus to do what they want to do. They want a Jesus who promises to make them wealthy and healthy and prosperous, but don't dare talk to me about a Jesus who wants obedience and commitment and devotion. They will praise him as long as he meets their selfish desires. And some people today will say, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't believe those things that you say the Bible teaches and I think God is a God of love, and he loves everybody, and he's certainly not going to punish, and he's not going to be a God of justice. He would never punish anyone. Listen, you can't can't edit God. You can't personalize God. You may personalize your homepage on MSN, even your iPhone, but he's not an I-God. You can't personalize him to make him the way you want. Those in Jerusalem wanted him to deliver them. They personalized that he was to be their military deliverer. Now, here's the problem with a fickle faith like theirs. When we want Jesus on our terms, here's the problem. It, that faith will fail. Always. It will fail. It will not endure. It cannot stand up in crisis. To enter into a faith for Jesus on your own terms would be like getting married with the assumption, getting married... My purpose in getting married is to meet all of my needs all the time. All right, I'll enter into marriage. I'm going to marry my bride so that all my needs will be met all the time. You know how long that lasts? I do these weddings right here. About 18 steps. (laughs) And then what if six months later the, the guy comes to me and says, you know, I just, this marriage isn't working out. Well, why not? He said, I thought, you know, I just don't think marriage, I'm going to do away with it. Why? Well, it hadn't met all my needs. And so when a person says, says, I used to believe, I used to have faith, but then God didn't answer my prayers. This terrible thing happened. This person I loved so much, they died. And I'd prayed and prayed, and I don't have faith anymore. You know what I would say? Good, good. Be done with that kind of faith. It never served you good in the first place. Never did right in the first place. Now get real faith. Let's come to the Bible and see what real faith would do. I'm glad you jettisoned the old faith. 
because a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so it will stand up. I'd say lose that faith. I'm sorry Jesus did not meet your expectations. I'm not talking about being cruel in that sense. But let's use the Bible and get the right expectations. Let's have the right Messiah. Come to Jesus as he is. Come to the God who is able to do whatever he pleases with whomever he pleases whenever he wishes. Come to that God. Don't come to your God. Come to the Bible's God. Come to the Jesus, to the Messiah, who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give, my re- give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my load is easy and my, load, and my burden is light. Come to that God. Come to that Jesus. So I want to appeal to you in my last moment to believe in Jesus with real faith. Uh, don't, don't be hypocritical faith like Judas, who not only was deceiving, he probably was deceived himself. He may have thought what he said was right. Don't be like the chief priests who were up to their ears in religion, but they missed the main point. Don't be like the crowd who was fickle. They believed as long as it was popular and they thought God was going to give them exactly what they wanted, but then they turned on him when they saw that he wasn't. Mary, now that's genuine faith. It was sacrificial. It was keen. She understood stuff people around her didn't see. She knew Jesus was the Messiah. She knew he was about to die. She knew she owed her life to him. So do you desire that today? I think the main fear that many people have that that don't have a major qualm with the message of the gospel is they feel that by believing in Christ, by trusting him, I will lose something. I might lose social standing. I might lose face with people that are close to me. I might lose my job because of the nature of my job that I won't be able to keep doing. I might lose some friends. I might lose a relationship, a dating relationship that I'm in right now. I want to tell you, you stand to lose something, but you stand to gain everything. And I want to close with the words of Jesus on this very issue of people fearing what they would lose. In Mark 10, he says, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the new life promised through Christ. We pray that you would give the gift of faith to those of us who like it. We pray that you might enable us and empower us to exercise our faith in you, not only as Savior, but also in the day-to-day details of life, to trust you with our lives in all areas. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.